We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Mark Twain smoked 40 cigars. 
cigars a day And like Picasso, Renoir, and Van Gogh He said a smoking's not allowed in heaven
Okay. It looks like we might have fixed it. Let's see. Can everyone hear me talking? I can see the... Okay. Yes. There we go. Thank you, backup internet. Um, <laughs> turn Always. on the generator. Always have plan B. <laughs> Always remember your plan B. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, to be here. This is uh, uh, the Truth Perspective. You know, 10 minutes left. It's February 7th. And we're going to be talking about two of our subjects, Ukraine and Hitler. Um, the two subjects that you love to hate, yes. Um, and take a love. Yeah. So, we will repeat ourselves a bit as we were speaking that people might be able to hear us, even though we had no idea. So, um, William, how about you give us a little update on what's gone in the economy, and we'll get into that uh, Munich security conference going on. Before the conference started, the Ukraine currency took a big tank. The Pervinia lost about 30 percent against the U.S. dollar, which, of course, that's going to inflation in Ukraine. The central decided it was no longer going to support currency with any kind of intervention. And as the currency dropped, they decided to raise interest rates as well from 14% to 19.5%. Uh, the IMF and the U.S. support this currency cut and they're going to force Ukraine to borrow even more money. <clears throat> now they've got uh, reserves are down 60% from the last year to only 7.5 billion. And on top of that, their economic situation is pretty straight as compared to when in Russia, their currency crisis. They have lots of gold reserves and lots of oil and, and still going. Um, Ukraine, on the other hand, their factories are shutting down. Their agriculture is just not clean. For example, the one of the largest factories in Ukraine, the machinery used mass, um, that's uh, down 80% of its output was being sold to Russia. And that included rock satellite agricultural buses, trams, turbines, wind turbine cars, and trucks. Um, so they're making now buses Czechoslovakia. Um, workers there haven't been paid since July. So their first uprise the company was founded in 1944. Um, so that's really bad news for Ukraine on, on the Front. Uh, and then there's the fact that they are so in Russia, China, billions and billions of dollars, and they have nothing to pay. Not pay at it. all. They could, they, like, those debts were called in. They, they could default and go completely bankrupt. Technically, in default, actually. Yeah. Um, IMF, uh, 17 billion promised to give. They've only given two tranches of $4.6 billion. Soros, of course, claims that Ukraine fifty billion in order to get itself back as uh, again. So, so this was happening uh, just before the Munich uh, counterparted. Big meeting there. Putin, Merkel, and Holland are getting together to try and figure out what to do about uh, Ukraine. 
What's interesting is these have uh, come out in the said so far, which can give you an idea of what Putin has to deal with there. Merkel uh, and, of course, are representing in the EU NATO commander, of course, Breedlove. He doesn't want military options to be included. Uh, these current talks are just unacceptable, uh, which along the line with U.S. and U.K., um, which are going to present these talks. All right, hold on a sec there, William. Um, we're getting word that is pretty choppy still, so we're going to try one little thing change, so we'll be in just hopefully like 30 seconds, so just hold on, and we'll be right back. Looks our plan C was worse than plan, so we're back to plan B. Um, give us a little bit and see if it's, it's too choppy to understand. I don't know what we're going to do. Just we keep talking and something gets through. Talk real slow, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So back to uh, so yeah. Mr. Olama, this is our last chance for peace. Uh, that's foreboding. Uh, and on the other side, Europeans uh, questioning the Russians are annoying. Kiev uh, to defend this Russian aggression. Honorable peace. This has to chime in as Ukraine is a particip- participatory democracy, as the EU should be. Ukraine is the process of nation building. One thing for credit for Hollande, he wants a broader economy um, for the Ukraine. Doesn't want any military going to Ukraine. You can't imagine Putin would militarily secure peace in Europe. Should not um, of course, we got little Poroshenko displaying six Russian packs. In Ukraine, and that's it's a Russian troop presence. And he's also calling for political, economic, and military aid, of course. Ukraine criticized that she doesn't care about the Ukrainians. Nuke, on his behalf, says uh, no military solution. There's no military solution to the Ukrainian war. Whereas Talk, but review defensive Ukraine. Um, and of course, now there's just rising anti war pro across Ukraine. A very pretty picture where Putin has to deal with uh, these uh, characters and try and come up with some sort of peace plan. I feel pretty sorry. I saw just on the Munich this was that um, Foreign Minister for Russia, Sergei Lavrov, um, uh, during his speech, his speech was scheduled at the same time as the presentation of the U.S. think tank. Um, it was the basically Brookings that had just come out, and the media center at conference 
as planned beforehand, but Ms. Lavrov's speech started to the media center and to the Brookings Institute port. Um, so I thought that would be. Um, and if you're not familiar with the report, um, so it came out, the report itself came out on February 2nd, so a while ago. And um, so Brooks is the um, two of the members of Brooks, Michael O'Hanlon and Kenneth. Those were two of the leaders uh, of, or two of the guys behind the kind of invade Iraq movement before 2003. Independence, resisting. Try this one more time. Okay. So we tr decided to, we decided to try option or plan D. So um, yeah, let us know if you can hear us. We're at, we actually went analog <laughs> for plan D. Okay. So let's kind of like let's well let's kind of start over by rehashing what's been going on. So first of all, um, let's get a give a little bit of background. So we've got these Munich talks that have been going on uh, this weekend. And they so started yesterday, and I guess, I think they're going on until Sunday. And so we had several speeches today, and you can get the highlights of them um, just from the wire services to see what people have been saying. Now, before that, several things have happened. So... Uh, on Thursday, John Kerry and Victoria Newland were in Kiev. They made a kind of emergency meeting there. Now, Kerry and especially Newland, they're kind of like the plague. So wherever they go, you know, wherever they've been, you can be sure that, you know, death and destruction <laughs> are going to follow. So we had them there. And then uh, so some of the things that Kerry had said in this time period, um, some interesting quotes that he said. He, he said, quote, we are not interested in a proxy war. Our objective is to change Russia's behavior, and we'll consider all options that are available to us in coordination with our partners that will help us achieve a negotiated solution. Pretty reasonable. Um, and he, called for, he even called for a ceasefire as well. Um, but at the same time, he's still backing up the, you know, the tired old uh, propaganda narratives about what's going on. So, um, of course, he's convinced that, the, that Russia is engaging that is actually participating militarily in the conflict with you know Russian troops that Russia has invaded Ukraine and so he he's kind of like uh, Jen Psaki and um, what's her other her blondie friend there in the State Department in the US like her he said that oh you just have to look on social media for proof of the Russian invasion it's all there and at the Munich meeting, Poroshenko gave his evidence, what he called the best evidence that there was that Russians were there, and that it was six Russian passports. Now, the the funny thing about that is that, 
okay, that's the best evidence he's got, six Russian passports. Well, no one, not even the Russians, have disputed that there are Russians in Ukraine. There have always been Russians in that region, and there are there are Russians fighting for the militias over there. They are volunteers. Now, it's kind of, you know, some people might say it's a, a shady, uh, gray distinction, but it is a real one, that these are not regular Russian troops. They are not being... Um, you know, paid and sent there with their Russian army fatigues and Russian military crossing the border and engaging, you know, joining up with the, with the DPR and the LPR and engaging in fighting. Um, just uh, a week or two ago, the Armed Forces Chief of Staff for Ukraine, Muzhenko, said, quote, the Ukrainian army is not fighting with the regular units of the Russian army. Um, this is the chief of staff for the armed forces of Ukraine saying this. And at the same time, you have Yatsenyuk saying that we are fighting the, the regular Russian forces. Um, well, you know, it's really easy to get out your cell phone and take a picture of these guys, you know. So why don't you do that? Because they're not there. That's why. So all of so in response to this, you know, the this one faction in the U.S. saying that they need to arm Ukraine to the teeth, you've got all these heads of the EU saying that this is a really bad idea. Um, so Hollande, um, just last week, he said that we have two choices. We can adopt the logic that the participants ought to be armed. Since Russia is arming the separatists, we will do the same for Ukrainians so that they can defend themselves. But how do you draw the line between defensive and o offensive weaponry? The other option is to try to find a compromise and convince both sides to cease fire diplomacy, negotiations, but they ought not continue endlessly because we are dealing with a war, a war which can become total. He also said that France and Germany have a special responsibility because both are closely tied to Russia and Ukraine. Um, now, Holland, he followed in Merkel's footsteps um, by saying that, uh, that France does not, consider, uh, does not even intend to consider the issue of arming Ukraine. Now, in response to that, John McCain said, quote, One might think that she, meaning Merkel, does not know or does not care that people are being slaughtered in Ukraine. Well, wow, John. It's like, well, you've got one thing right. Um, you know, people are being slaughtered in Ukraine, and it is by the very people that you want to give more weapons to. Those are the people slaughtering people in Ukraine. The... I, the I mean, the militias aren't going on the offensive against other Ukrainian towns, shelling them, killing civilians, bombing bus stops, bombing hospitals and schools. They're not the ones doing that. It is Kiev's forces that are doing that. They're the ones bombing civilian areas, bombing entire cities and residential areas, killing thousands of people who are not even engaged in the fighting. Wasn't it uh, McCain who said that uh, we uh, we failed to give the Ukraines enough military weapons that they're having to use cluster bombs now? Yeah, so I guess well, I I guess he's taking a bit of responsibility there for <laughs> for the use of cluster bombs. Hey, he's admitting it. Um, but so why is this all going on? Um, We've got these EU heads all getting together. They're talking about ceasefire. They're talking about weapons. Um, and well, one more guy actually, because we have 
Um, you know, Hollande, he actually made some pretty reasonable statements. He and Merkel have been this past week. But then we come to a guy like Saakashvili, you know, the ex-leader of, uh, of Georgia. And so recently in an interview for Ukraine's Channel 24, he said, quote, that our officers who were trained by the Americans are now training your, the Ukrainian military. They say the spirit of Ukrainian soldiers is the best in the world. And if they were given the necessary knowledge, skills, and weapons, they would be able to capture the whole of Russia. Um, so he, he, then, <laughs> he, he then said that he believes that the main problem for Ukraine is its outdated anti-tank weaponry. But newer weapon systems exist in the U.S., and if they were willing to provide them, Ukraine would smash the first 50 Russian tanks. Everything will go completely differently from there. Uh, yeah, dream on, Sakashvili. Uh, yeah, Sakashvili the tie eater. Um, I mean, I'm surprised that he wasn't gagging on it when he was saying this, but um, he also said that he noted that the U.S. saw the feet of the Ukrainian people and saw that Ukraine... We got nothing? Um, hey, can everyone hear us there? Okay, no, we're here. Okay. So, um, he said that the Ukraine is ready to, to, is ready to defend the democratic values so integral for the United States. He noted that the U.S. is ready to provide U Ukraine with anti-tank weaponry, um, ready to give drones and artillery. So... That's Saakashvili, obviously living in some kind of fantasy world. Uh, I think he's been living there for a while, actually. He moved in, you know, decades ago, and he's just been having a great time um, not being able to tell, you know, black from white or left from right. Or <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in fact, the opposite seems to be true. There are uh, estimates of a million and a half Ukrainian men of military age um, who've reported to have been fleeing uh, Ukraine just so that they don't have to serve uh, in the Ukrainian army. Um, some of them have gone to Russia, Romania, Bulgaria, and, uh, and it seems that they're really having a tough time, far from being, you know, this incredible fighting force, you know, all these guys are running for their lives. They, they see no purpose in it. Um, there was a... Uh, there was a, a, a really horrible case of this, um, horrible from the point of view of, uh, of Kiev, um, in the town of Odessa, uh, where local ethnic Moldovans um, got enraged by a recruiter showing up with uh, armed soldiers. So what had happened was um, all of these locals surrounded the soldiers, took away their guns, their Kalashnikovs, and burned the conscription papers. Um, so there, there is this uh, this this um, upsurge in, uh, except of course for the for the Nazis and the and the people who have uh, aligned themselves with uh, Stefan Bandera. I mean, I think the writing is on the wall for a lot of uh, Ukrainians. Um, they see that it's a useless war, and uh, along these lines, there was a a really interesting um, uh, scene that was caught on video. This was in the town of uh, Velikaya Znamenka, uh, where a, a soldier came up to speak before uh, before the people and uh, and tried to rustle up some more conscripts to fight in the regions of uh, of Donetsk. 
and I think we have uh, some audio of that. Um, we're going to play it, even though they're speaking uh, in, in in Russian or Ukrainian. But um, we have a transcript of it, so I think what I'll do is I'll just read some of that over, and and you can get a sense of just how um, just how emotional and just how knowledgeable. Uh, these locals in uh, Velikaya Znamenka are about the situation there. На данный момент военнослужащие вооруженных сил Украины выполняют все поставленные задачи на востоке Украины, связанные с защитой территориальной целостности нашей украинской державы, государства. Мы хотим, чтобы Украина была одна единая от Востока до Запада. У нас один украинский народ. Но в марте месяце у нас преимущество and someone just says, why didn't you do something about it back then? This is bullshit. And here's the lady saying, you are saying Crimea was taken by force. It left without a single shot fired. It's Russian land, and they took it back. The next and the gun do not want to obey your agenda. Now it turns out we're all separated from it, and we have to fight the next. to take our language from us. We don't make you Russian. We don't make you talk Russian. And the soldier, what do you mean us? And the woman says, you, Poroshenko, all. You started it. When you talked about banning Russian language, killing Muscovites, killing separatists. If we support Russian people, then we are bad, then we are traitors. What right do you have to take our rights from us? You call us separatists, and then you tell us we have to go kill people in Donetsk and Lugansk? Because they want to live in their own land? If they want to, let them. Why should we and our men go and kill them? And she just drowns out the soldier who tries to say something. And the woman says, that's what you keep saying, that we have to go kill them. Your Ukrainian junta, Poroshenko, Yutanyuk, keep spouting that drivel. We're sick of it. We won't listen to it anymore. Our children aren't going anywhere. 
Our husbands aren't going anywhere. They have all served already. They don't owe you anything. We won't believe you anymore. You speak nothing but lies. And obviously the crowd is behind this lady. I can speak for the whole district. No one in the district will not go to war, or will go to war. Any volunteers they wanted have already gone, and we will stay here at home. We want to build Ukraine. Quit destroying it. Quit bringing it to its knees. Poroshenko should go to Minsk talks. Then there will be peace. Who needs this war? You need it? You go fight. We don't need it. We want to raise children and grandchildren and build Ukraine. We want to work here. Why do you come to take all our men? And there are people in the crowd that say they won't bring our men back. You say there are enemies there? You go fight them. We have no enemies there. Best friends and family. Why do you conscript people? If someone wants to volunteer, let them go fight. I don't know for what cause. We're tired of listening to poison on TV. How much longer should we endure those propaganda lies? Do you think we're all idiots here? You think people are sheep? You can lie to us and scare us and we'll do what we're told? No, we're tired of it. We will also defend ourselves. Yeah, well, the audio is over, but she goes on to say, and I, I read this a little slowly, uh, Russia sends them humanitarian aid. Did Kiev send them any food? Did it send anything at all? And she she ends by saying, uh, you've complete, completely taken all our rights. We have no right to speak, and we are against joining EU, against NATO. So, I mean, yay. I mean, this is really, you know, this is this is from uh, an average woman uh, who's finally had enough, who who has uh, enough righteous outrage to to come out and really put this uh, this Kiev soldier who's trying to conscript more uh, cannon fodder for the war against Donetsk in his place, and uh, she does so su- successfully, and. Um, and it's really kind of refreshing, actually, to hear this uh, coming from someone who's there and who sees things pretty much the way uh, a lot of folks see it. And that's what's really going on. Um, the, that's what people really think in these regions. Now... So this is the background to what's been going on for the past week with all these leaders, including Poroshenko, calling for, and John Kerry, and UK Foreign Secretary Philip Hammond and Merkel and Hollande, all calling for a ceasefire, saying that the, there's no military solution that um, you need to negotiate. Of course, this is the sane response. This is what should actually be happening. But the reason it came up right now 
inconveniently is because of what's been actually happening in Donetsk and Lugansk. And the the situation there, so in addition to the currency tanking in Ukraine, like William was mentioning at the beginning of the show, is that the Ukrainian military is basically on the verge of annihilation. Um, one of the, A former Russian minister of internal affairs um, said that the Ukrainian army is in such a condition that the militia can freely advance until they reach the boundaries of Lugansk and Donetsk uh, regions. Now, what's been happening is that the fighting re-intensified this month, um, started around Christmas, and it's been going ever since. And what has actually been going on, and you won't find this in the Western media or in the, the media, the mainstream in Ukraine, is that the Ukrainian armed forces are getting their asses kicked. Now, it's not, it's not a total rout. I mean, there are casualties on both sides, but it's at least three or four to one in favor of the Novorossian arm, armed forces. So there, there have been clashes along the entire front, uh, the front line, and the, in, in a single week at the airport, uh, and in re- and regions surrounding, Kiev lost about over a thousand soldiers just in that one um, in that one week of of fighting. And in addition to that, the what well what happens is the Ukrainians they set up along the front and in in the small settlements and towns around um, on that front, and they set up their artillery and you know their rocket launchers and things like that, and they just fire. Into the into the cities at the residential areas. That's one part of their so-called um, defensive anti-terrorist operation. The other is engaging in fighting with the militias. Now, with the militias, they don't seem to do a very good job because, like I said, they have just tons of casualties. They lost the airport. They they are now up to uh, well, at least probably eight thousand Ukrainian troops that are that are encircled in um, Debaltsevo. And so they're trapped there. They're surrounded on all sides by the Novorossian armed forces. And it even looks like there's a, a couple of days ago there was a second pocket forming just to the northwest of that. So there are thousands of Ukrainian troops stuck in there. And this is like it's like putting fish in a barrel and, you know, taking out your your little air rifle and picking them off. That's kind of the equivalent of this type of situation. Just the same thing happened last year in Ilovaisk. Um, and that's, that led to another um, similar kind of ceasefire where the Ukrainians say, oh, you know, crap, you know, we didn't see this coming. We, we better call for a ceasefire and, um, you know, regroup and plan another offensive. So the same kind of thing is happening. The reason that all these all these leaders are making these statements. The reason that Poroshenko himself has come out and asked for a ceasefire is because the Ukrainians, as they are, as the military is, cannot win this war in the current situ- in the current with the current conditions as they are. The Novorossians hold the upper hand on on the in in these areas and on the front line. And with the the, the eight thousand troops that are um, encircled in Debaltseva, they the, uh, there are some reports saying that could be up to half or more than half than the, of the entire Ukrainian forces fighting in that region. So that is a huge number. And if, if they don't go for a ceasefire, all these guys could die. I mean, it's as simple as that because there's no, there's no way out. 
the Donetsk and Lugansk control the regions all around there now. So, oh, here's a lot. Well, um, yeah, so, you know, if, if you remember or, or consider that one of the objectives here is for the ethnic cleansing of, uh, of, of the Donetsk regions, um, of the Nouveau Russians uh, by the Ukrainian army, uh, it's going very badly. I mean, that, that's the ultimate objective of, of Kiev's and, and the U.S. It's to uh, take over these lands uh, that are rich in coal and other resources, and, um, and they're not doing a very good job of it. Uh, as Harrison just said, you know, that this sort of thing's happened before. I mean, a few months ago you had the ceasefire, and uh, all it really was was uh, a time period for allowing uh, the Ukrainian military to regroup because they weren't doing very well against the um, the rebels. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like we're getting into an even uh, more difficult period because, uh, you know, Merkel and Holland in, in going to Russia, uh, they, there had to have been some amount of um, discussion about this with the U.S. And uh, what I fear is that uh, this is just another stalling uh, tactic, uh, although you know it's up for interpretation. Uh, yes, you know U Ukraine's military is in is in danger of not fulfilling its mission of of ethnically cleansing um, the Nuva Russians, but uh, it seems like the U.S. has a a choice to make right now. Do they want to uh, fully arm uh, Kiev um, and? Uh, and with the full knowledge that this won't be acceptable on the part of Russia, and that means uh, commitment to war on an even greater level. So, um, the IMF wants their blood money back. yes, <laughs> William adds that the IMF wants their blood money back, of course. So that there are several levels to the whole situation. Um, they have to be in some kind of panic uh, about the fact that. Uh, you know the situation in Kiev is even, however tenuous it was with with their junta, it's no longer tenable. Uh, it's it's about to go down in flames. You have uh, uh, Arseniy Yatsenyuk, uh, the prime minister, uh, good old Yats. Uh, they say that he's planning his own coup against Poroshenko. Uh, uh, he thinks that Poroshenko is 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 not being quite vicious enough. And uh, I don't, I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know how much worse it can get. Um, but uh, Poroshenko knows this, so Poroshenko uh, is in a tough place, and uh, you know he wants, uh, he wants to maintain. He wants to have his chocolate needed too. He's got his cho chocolate factories in Russia that he, you know, he's still making money from, even though he said that he would, you know, get out of the business when he was campaigning. And, uh, you know, he knows he has people who are ready to take him out uh, in order to fill his position. And, and the U.S. is upset with him because they don't think he's committing enough aggression. So uh, a really, really uh, horrible situation there, uh, a tinderbox. And um, 
unless there is some sincere uh, amount of um, discussion on the part of uh, Kiev with the Nouveau Russians, uh, we're looking at, I think, what is potentially a, um, a much bigger war. And just some more background on just, on just how inadequate the the Ukrainian military is. Um, I mean, we played the clip of the woman speaking, and that's just one example of the total failure of this last mobilization of troops. Uh, Poroshenko wanted to get something like you know a hundred thousand new troops conscripted to to go and die for the glory of Ukraine. And, you know, there, there are figures out there, but something like only 20% of the, the recruitable men, you know, actually showed up. The recruiters are getting kicked out of towns. Um, you know, people are just yelling them out. And so, yeah, and, there's def- and the, the number of defections. Uh, apparently there are something like a million um, combat-aged men who have, you know, fled to Russia to avoid getting involved in this ridiculous war. So the Ukrainian side, I mean, oh, and so their morale is just zero, at least for for the regular troops, not the kind of the, the right sector mili- uh, uh, mercenary types that just, you know, get their jollies by killing as many people as possible. The, the morale is down, and you can tell, it's funny how, some militaries work that you know morale is obviously down and yet so so what's the response what's the natural response in order to get you know troops morale up well ukraine just passed a, a new law authorizing military superiors to shoot to kill their own troops who refuse to follow orders so basically um if they're not doing what they tell you okay well you know we won't let those evil Russians kill you. We're just going to do it for them. That's kind of what this descends to. Just the the number of the amount of senseless killing that goes on, and and now we're going to have Ukrainian commanders killing their own um, their own troops. So it kind of puts well, it does put in stark relief the attitude um, of the two sides. Because if you watch the videos of Donetsk's Prime Minister Zakharchenko dealing with the prisoners of wars and talking with their families, he he lays it out like it is. Um, there was one video of him talking to a, a really young guy that he that he gave back to his mother to send back to Ukraine, and he told her, you know, point blank, you probably don't want your son living in Ukraine anymore. You better send him. To you know, another country, get him out of the country because he is not safe. And it wasn't a threat. It was. It that's just the way it is for for a for a guy in that situation. You know, a guy, a prisoner of war who's let go, and who's on camera. You know, saying things like, "I had no idea that we were bombing civilians. They weren't telling us that. They don't show us that on the news. We thought we were fighting Russians." That's a dangerous position to be in and the, just the amount of of respect and um just kindness that a man like Zakharchenko will show these these young you know fresh recruits who have come to to just kill people it's and compare that to 
the Ukrainians who are giving commanders the authority to shoot to kill men who fail to carry out orders. And then look at the types of orders that the commanders do give. They tell they'll they'll send out a small group of of guys to carry out a certain objective and to lie to them about it. They'll say, "Okay, you're going to to carry out the wounded of this you know of this area." So they'll they'll head out there in their you know two vans or trucks or whatever, a small group of people. They get there and then they receive their real orders. Okay, you're on the offensive. So they've been thrown into this situation on total totally false pretenses. They're not prepared for it, and then. You know, you can guess what happens after that. Yeah, and and these new conscripts have also been promised um, pay, <laughs> which which they don't get. Uh, on top of that, many of them are being told that they're just going to go away for three weeks training uh, and end up going on the front lines for six months. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's a really interesting comparison that you just made between how you know guys like. Uh, Zakharchenko uh, are um, kind of compassionate, uh, showing more compassion to these soldiers who are being conscripted to fight against his people um, next to uh, how the government of Kiev in a, a desperate, absolutely desperate push uh, to, to get more fighting forces together. And, um, you know, the question is, would they be doing this if they hadn't been uh, promised with uh, with treasure and power by the U.S., uh, which is the ponderizing uh, force in this whole thing, as well as the EU for that matter, and the answer is, you know, probably not. Um, so once again, you know, like Iraq, like Libya, like uh, the designs on Syria. Um, you know, you have the U.S. engineering these uh, these these wars for its own um, for its own goals of uh, hegemony, and we're destroying. The U.S. is destroying the lives of tens of thousands, if not millions, of people, um, and we just keep seeing it again and again, and uh, there just seems to be no end in sight. Um, and part of that, of course, is the fact that we have, you know, guys like Thomas Friedman of the New York Times, um, who is uh, widely, quote-unquote, respected, uh, and who's supposed to be on the kind of progressive liberal side of uh, news reporting in the U.S., uh, calling Putin a Hitler and an aggressor and just repeating these charges, and it's completely baseless. Um and yet, uh, a lot of people are buying into it, and um, it's exactly these uh, these organs of the media and guys like Friedman and others who uh, I, I don't know how to I don't know how to account for it. They they're I guess they know that they wouldn't have their jobs unless they repeated these lies, and on some level they are. Um, is it patriotism? Is it? Uh, I mean, if if a person is truly patriotic, then they have to see how destructive these policies are. So, um, you know, it, it, it's it's baffling. Well, I think a lot of people are seeing it, and 
even the people that pay lip service to the propaganda, uh, I'm talking specifically about leaders in the EU and even people in Ukraine um, in positions of some influence. That's why you have um, people like Kerry and Hollande who will who will pay lip service to the idea that there's you know a Russian invasion in Ukraine, but that there's no military solution. We need uh, we need negotiations. We need a, a lasting peace in the region because. The people, like the leaders in the EU at least, seem to be seeing that this was a big mistake, and they basically they bet on the wrong horse by going with the U.S. on this, and, I don't know, maybe um, succumbing to a little bit of blackmail in order to go along with it. But now people are seemingly seeing that this there's no, there's, they're not going to win the way they thought they were going to win in this conflict, and things have just spiraled out of control to the point where uh, it's just not going according to plan. I mean, Russia hasn't invaded yet, despite how many times Poroshenko and, and Yatsenyuk have said they have. And even despite that lack of Russian regular forces, Donetsk and Lugansk have been pretty successful. And they have gained a lot of, quote, political capital in the process. Because now that they've gone on this kind of counter-offensive, they've retaken uh, additional portions of the Donetsk and Lugansk regions that had been under Ukrainian control, and now they're in a, a they've got a bargaining position where um, apparently in these in these new uh, talks with the leaders of France and Germany and Russia, is that what they want is they want the they want to kind of go along with the so-called Minsk protocols, but now they want to revise them. They want to the front line to be the, the line of demarcation to be established on its current uh, on the current front lines. So all the they want all the land that they've retaken in the past month. And not only not only that, the the, the DPR put out a press release just this week saying that they they announce uh, that they they intend to be the successor of the Donetsk Krivoy Rog Republic. Now this was uh, a region in that area during the Soviet Union that comprised um, various different regions in the southeast of Ukraine there, Donetsk Lugansk and the other re- some parts of Russia and and the the regions that have towns like Odessa and Mariupol in them. So they're saying basically that this is what this is how they envision uh, the the Donetsk People's Republic, um, taking into account all that occupied land. Now, this is how how I see it, at least, as part of Donetsk, and that seems, I mean, it's reasonable because the people in these in these towns on the outskirts, just out of the front. I mean, we it's hard to know without a, a referendum, but um, just from watching videos and reading articles and seeing what these people think, you know, they'd rather be part of Donetsk than Ukraine. Well, the other part of this is that, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're kind of making a point of saying, um, you know, your aggression towards us has been so egregious that uh, we're just going to keep surging forward until you know as far as we can go i mean it and and the other part of this is that they've kind of been forced to uh they're you know they're routing the the kiev forces uh 
um, as much as possible anyway. And uh, they're kind of forced into, into a situation. But, you know, while you were saying that, Harrison, I was thinking, if, if they felt truly that there was some kind of um, new constitution that was created that was equitable and that they didn't have these, uh, th- these Nazis um, breathing down their necks, uh, they would probably retreat to, to the lines that they uh, existed at before or, or you know, would concede uh, land that they've taken in recent weeks. Um, these aren't people who, who are, uh, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not after land. They're not after uh, power. They just want their lives. Um, yeah. So that's what's going on. The the Munich talks will end tomorrow, um, and then the plan is for Hollande, Merkel, Putin, and Poroshenko to have a phone call where they discuss um, Hollande and Merkel's so-called you know new peace plan. So the, the details of this of this haven't been released yet. Um, Hollande and Merkel met with Putin yesterday and talked for over five hours, but the the details haven't been released yet. A German newspaper uh, claims to have you know kind of leaked some of the details, but the German government denies it. Basically, just saying that the the plan is kind of based on Putin's original plan. Um, the Minsk idea is greater autonomy for for Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, federalization, uh, new line of demarcation, and possibly new sanctions for Russia to go along with it. I guess that might be the price Russia has to pay for getting, um, you know, for having the fighting stop. And then on Monday, Merkel is going to Washington to meet with Obama, so it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. Um, one of the, the interesting thing about all this is that there seem to be factions in all these countries, um, there are the people that see, you know, despite if they're good or bad people or just totally greedy or power hungry, some of them do seem to see that the the situation is dire and the the war doesn't make any sense. And Poroshenko might even be part of that faction. Um, it seems to be. I mean, he seems at least. It's hard to know how much or what he really thinks if if all of his talk with Putin about, you know, ceasefires is really genuine or if or if it's not, if it's if he's just saying things because he realizes that if he makes one bad move, he's out and, you know, he'll go the way of Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein and anyone else in a similar position. And then you've got um people like the foreign minister of Ukraine, Pavlo Klimkin. He said that there are no plans to sever diplomatic or economic relations with Russia. So there are people that want things to continue on as they were before, to have a peaceful existence and a peaceful economic relationship. Even guys like Kolomoisky who are, are saying things like this. So if you've got a guy like him saying this, I mean, the situation must be bad. Kolomoisky is the, yeah, the oligarch, the kind of one of the richest guys in, in Ukraine. And he's, he's got a whole bunch of, he's got his own private armies that uh, that have been engaged in fighting in there. And some more of the big picture, we've got a guy like Brzezinski. 
Here's something that he said recently. He said that the ultimate aim of the U.S. and its allies is to reduce Russia to an impoverished and semi-colonial status, such a strategy... Um, well, sorry, that's just a description of, of Brzezinski's views. Um, so in a speech last year, he said uh, he called on Russia or he called on Washington to provide Kiev with weapons designed particularly to permit Ukrainians to engage in effective urban warfare of resistance. There's that thing again where, you know, we want it's a good thing to provide Kiev with all these weapons to defend themselves. I mean, where have we heard that before? Uh, take a guess. So in line with the policies now recommended in the report by the Brookings Institution and other think, other think tanks, so Brzezinski is calling for providing anti-tank weapons um, for use in urban short-range fighting. Now, of course, these aren't for use in towns in Ukraine for urban fighting. They're for towns in Donetsk and Lugansk. How can they be defensive if they are sending their troops into other people's land. It doesn't really make much sense, does it? So, there's that. There's that. And, you know, gosh, it, it occurred to me, we keep hearing Russia invaded Ukraine, Russia invaded Ukraine. There was that video that came out recently of a, of a um, I think it was an American uh, soldier or someone at, at least dressed in American uh, uh, fatigues who was caught on video um, in one of the towns. Uh, you know, there, was a, there happened to be a news crew there at the time. And um, he said something like, you know, please get out of my way or, or out of my face. And, out of my face. Out of my face. And, uh, okay, so uh, who is this guy? Uh, why is he there? And what we know is that uh, you have paid mercenaries uh, from companies like uh, Academy, uh, formerly uh, Blackwater, that was the Blackwater is the original name. You might remember them from uh, uh, certain things they were doing in Iraq a number of years ago, and probably still are. Uh, you have um, hundreds of advisors from the Pentagon and the CIA in Kiev uh, who are, um, as we speak, strategizing um, about how to continue with the war because they have to make it look as though uh, this is the Ukrainian army uh, that that's uh, fighting this just fight. Um, but really, they they have. Well, let me just say it: the U.S. has invaded Ukraine. Uh, it's not Russia. Um, all the signs are here uh, or there, and um, it would be refreshing if, for once. Uh, someone came out and actually said it as it is. The U.S. has invaded Ukraine. Um, and uh, I guess uh, I guess we'll know very soon uh, how things pan out. Harrison, I, I was wondering if uh, this might be a good time to, unless there's anything else to cover. Um, well, it looks like there is, so I'm going <laughs> to pass this back. Well, just one thing to, to preface the discussion we'll get into next. What really gets me is just the amount and the the intensity of the lies and how opposite everything is that the U.S. State Department and the media tell us about what's going on. Because if you listen to them, 
it's the Russians who, who want war. They are the aggressors. They are invading. They are the violent ones. They are the ones that want people to die. They're the ones that want a war. And that is completely not the case. In this entire conflict, Russia has displayed, like, the, rest- the amount of restraint that they've displayed has just been stunning. I mean, all the... And this, despite whatever um, whatever support they may be giving the the people in Donetsk and Lugansk, they have uh, yeah with all those aid convoys and stuff like that. They they re- they asked Donetsk to refrain from having their referendum in May. They recognized the sham Ukrainian elections that happened. After that, they recognized Poroshenko as the president, even though that election was a total farce. None of the people in the, the whole southeast of the of the region were able to. Know, have their voices heard? Um, they didn't recognize. They didn't officially recognize the DPR and LPR in November elections. They supported federalization as opposed to annexing the regions. Uh, they were behind the Minsk protocols and all the agreements that have come out of there. Um, like in summary, the Russians don't want a war. They they want peace. And everything that they've actually done, if you look at their actions, has been in support of this. Or to use Ukraine's speech in defense they have been supporting a defensive operation in Donetsk and Lugansk it's that simple the people who are defending themselves are the people being bombed by Kiev and being shot and tortured it's that simple and you don't even have to well you can listen to the Ukrainians themselves to some of the things that they say like the the commander of the Ukrainian government's volunteer battalion Shakhtarsk um, this guy uh, said that, quote, our mission, being employees of the Ministry of the Interior, is to clean the cities after the army has worked this territory with, art- with aircraft, artillery, and heavy military equipment. This is a normal tactical approach to warfare. Okay, yeah, so you go in and you clean up the cities after they've been bombed by the regular Ukrainian forces. You've got retired Colonel General Vladimir Ruban, who was interviewed um, on uh, a pro-Ukrainian government TV station and he said i want to offer the ukrainian artillerists medals to those who shell the city of donetsk the houses and the civilian population for they the artillerists uh, have deserved it they deserve medals both because of the accuracy and the inaccuracy it's one thing if attack groups or any mobile mortar group mortar troops drive through the city and shoot but if the artillery units fired from the airport like from a distance then no one can can claim that the separatists shoot themselves the shelling there is done as intimidation, not just object destruction, but intimidation to get the population to flee to nearby Russia. The civilian population is intimidated by a chaotic bombardment of different objects. There are many shells, shells that plug directly into the streets or vegetable gardens, blah, blah, blah. Um, these, so when you hear Kiev saying that well, they say a number of things. First, they say that there are, there are no or very few casualties among the Ukrainian troops. That's a lie. They say that all those hospitals and schools and apartment buildings being bombed, oh, well, that's Donetsk bombing themselves. No, it's not. It's the Ukrainian forces targeting those areas. And the, the militias, when they clean out an area that was occupied by these troops, they find their plans. They find the coordinates that they were using to target these buildings. And it's plain as day, they are officially tar- and deliberately targeting these residential areas. Plain and simple. That's it. And, uh, I mean, even Poroshenko honored one of the kind of 
um, crazies, Andrei Bilecki, he was given the Order of Courage, and this is something that, that, that this guy wrote recently. He wrote that the, the historic mission of our nation in this critical moment is to lead the white races of the world in a final crusade for their survival, a crusade against the Semite-led subhumans. The task of the present generation is to create a third empire. And, of course, Hitler called it the Third Reich. And so, you know, these are these guys in their own words. And, I mean, so, yeah, to lead the white races of the world in a final crusade for their survival. That's what these guys think. And these are the guys that the West is, you know, putting their full support behind and wants to give new and, you know, uh, accurate defensive weapons to defend themselves from, you know, the people hiding in their basements. So, yeah, so what does that remind us of? Well, that's what we're going to get into for this last portion of the show. Um, well, yeah, we were, uh, you know, we were looking at the situation here um, in Ukraine, and obviously you have uh, Dagnable Nazis um, who are being um, uh, provoked, unleashed, uh, supported, um, Nazi parties, uh, but the Azov Battalion, uh, the various parties, and um, you know, connecting that with a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, Islamophobia uh, that we've been uh, privy to, a lot of the irrational fear of uh, of Muslims in the world. <clears throat> uh, you can't help but make certain comparisons or or be reminded by the events of World War II uh, in which the Nazi party arose in Germany in the uh, in the early 30s um, and so there's a there's a book a memoir uh, written by a, a young writer uh, named Sebastian Hafner um, called defying Hitler and um, if uh, if you haven't read this book, it it really is a must read. Um, it uh, it kind of it's it's Hafner's examination of his um, experience of watching Germany uh, fall under the, uh, the the psychological, emotional, and spiritual clutches of the Nazi Party, and. Um, you know, you read things that that he that he writes in this book that are um, that show great insight into you know why people responded in the way that they did. I don't think you can ever get to the bottom of it, um, but he does cover a lot of areas. Um, he uh, he examines his own responses and reactions to it and his upbringing. Um, it's incredibly well written, um, and uh, here is one passage. Um, you know, he's constantly writing about his own self-examination and, and thoughts um, as things were happening, including his shortcomings and what he thinks his strengths were in coming to as an objective um, view of the development uh, and 
in Germany in the 30s as, as one can, I think. So in that respect, it's also a very personal uh, piece of writing. And uh, this is a part where he talks about um, his political views and, uh, and part of the situation there. He says, At the time, I had no strong political views. I even found it difficult to decide whether I was right or left to use the most general political categories. When I was asked this once in 1932, I answered hesitantly, well, probably right. In day-to-day -day politics, I formed my views according to the circumstances. Sometimes I had no view at all. None of the existing political parties seemed particularly attractive to me, despite the abundant choice. Anyway, belonging to any of them would not have saved me from becoming a Nazi, ut exempla docent, which in Latin means, for example, they teach. What saved me was my nose. I have a fairly well-developed figurative sense of smell, or to put it differently, a sense of the worth or worthlessness of human, moral, political views and attitudes. Most Germans, unfortunately, lack this sense almost completely. The cleverest of them are capable of discussing themselves stupid with their abstractions and deductions, when just using their noses would tell them that something stinks. I had already acquired the habit of using my nose to test the few opinions I held firmly. As for the Nazis, my nose left me with no doubts. It was just tiresome to talk about which of their alleged goals and intentions were still acceptable or even historically justified when all of it stank. How it stank! That the Nazis were enemies, my enemies, and the enemies of all I held dear was crystal clear to me from the outset. What was not at all clear to me was what terrible enemies they would turn out to be. I was inclined not to take them very seriously a common attitude among the, their inexperienced opponents, which helped them a lot and still helps them. There are few things as comic as the calm, superior indifference with which I and those like me watched the beginnings of the Nazi revolution in Germany, as if from a box at the theater. It was, after all, a movement with the declared intention of doing away with us, Perhaps the only comparably comic thing is the way that now, years later, Europe is permitting itself exactly the same indifferent attitude, as though it were a superior, amused onlooker, while the Nazis are already setting it all right, alight at all four corners. And um, you know, he wrote this, I think this was still during the war, uh, 39, yeah, something sometime around then while the situation was going on. Uh, but it's awfully prescient. I mean, um, he was able to see that um, underestimating this mindset, uh, this Nazi uh, thinking and psychology that was uh, permeating Germany in the 30s uh, wasn't something that could be or should have been uh, dismissed or underestimated. Uh, it was something that had to be grappled with. Um, so that was one packet, uh, passage uh, from Defying Hitler. And there are a few others here that, uh, that seem to resonate with, uh, with what we're seeing today.
so in the first part of the book, he describes everything that kind of led up to the Nazis, so the First World War and the German Revolution, and then leading up to the Nazis taking power and everything that came after that. So right at the beginning, he says, he describes his relationship with the Nazis as a duel. And um, so he writes, With fearful menace, the state demands that the individual give up his friends, abandon his lovers, renounce his beliefs, and assume new prescribed ones. He must use a new form of greeting, eat and drink in ways he does not fancy, employ his leisure in occupations he abhors, make himself available for activities he despises, and deny his past and his individuality. For all this, he must constantly express extreme enthusiasm and gratitude. Now, if any of our listeners have read Ponderology, I mean, you'll you'll see the connections there. That's exactly what Lobachevsky describes when psychopaths get into power and create what he called a pathocracy. The rules of the game change, and the rules of being human change. You can no longer express yourself as you once did, but you must conform to an anti-human mentality and worldview. So, um, Hafner goes on. He describes the time... Um, the times and the decisions that's, that happen in situations like this. So he writes that these events have naturally left their mark on me, as on all my compatriots. This is all the stuff leading up to World War II. If one fails to appreciate this, one will not be able to understand what happened later. There is, however, an important difference between what happened between uh, before 1933 and what came afterward. We watched the earlier events unfold. They occupied and excited us, sometimes even killed one or another of us or ruined him. But they did not confront us with the ultimate decisions of conscience. Our innermost being remained untouched. We gained experience, we, oh, sorry, we gained experience, acquired convictions, but remained basically the same people. However, no one has willingly or reluctantly been caught up in the machine of the Third Reich. Uh, no one who has reluctantly or willingly been caught up in the machine of the Third Reich, can honestly say that of himself. Now, these are the same things that we're going through now, or we have been for years. These events that just kind of pass us by don't really touch our lives until it comes to that point, the ultimate decision of conscience. And by then, it's a, de a decision that may determine the course of your life, you know, whether you live or die, whether your family lives or dies. So, it things just spiral along, they just go, events happen, we, we react to them, we participate in them, but it's like, you know, it's just it's just going along with the norm, just doing what we've always done, but it's that exact mentality that leads to and allows for those moments of those ultimate decisions of conscience. So Hafner describes the, the big events as thunderstorms, he says that um, official academic history has, as I said, nothing to tell us about the differences in intensity of historical occurrences. To learn about that, you must read biographies, not those of statesmen, but the all-too-rare ones of unknown individuals. There you will see that one historical event passes over the private, real lives of people like a cloud over a lake. Nothing stirs. There is only a fleeting shadow. Another event whips up the lake as in a thunderstorm. For a while, it is scarcely recognizable. A third may, perhaps, drain the lake completely. 
So these are events of importance of the, they're like branches in a in a quantum particle when 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 parallel universes split. These are these are events of of significance for human life and for the the development of of and the future of human life. And if people will retain their humanity, because like Hafner was saying, things just happen, events just hap just happen, and it leads to a point where it gets to the point where we're in a situation where we find ourselves in this bizarro world where all of a sudden we can't even smile at, at certain things because if we're walking down the street and someone sees us smiling in a certain situation, that's enough to identify us as a subversive or someone that's against the party. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he makes these observations and... Um Actually, at one point in the book, he presents three categories or different types of approaches that uh, that he's been able to observe among people who have um, witnessed the rise of the Nazi party and, and didn't like it. Uh, the first approach um, was one of uh, superiority. So, like, he points to the fact that many older Germans who didn't like the Nazi party would just keep hoping and saying that at some point uh, they would be defeated. They had to be. It was just around the corner. It would just be next month. And, um, and so they kind of uh, succumbed to the illusion that um, at any time this, uh, you know, this evil force was, was going to be um, destroyed by the German people themselves. Um, the second approach uh, Hafner noticed among people was, uh, and again, this is among people who didn't like the Nazi party, was that they became so embittered and angry uh, that these atrocities would happen that they actually, um, in a certain sense, uh, joined the, the ranks of the Nazi party. Um, you know, they, they fell into despair and, and into a kind of, if you can't beat them, join them mentality um, and were completely lost uh, to their emotions. Uh, and the third approach, um, he, he kind of uh, applies to himself. Um, and this is an interesting passage which, which speaks to his own uh, thought processes um, in, in fighting this kind of virus, this, this contagion of evil. Um, he says, At just this time, I read a dangerous, alluringly ambiguous sentence of Stendhal's. He wrote it as a coda after the restoration of 1814, an event that he felt to be a descent into the quagmire, just as I viewed the events of 1933, uh, 1933 being the time that uh, the Nazis effectively um, took control of the government. There was only one thing, he wrote, still worth the toil and trouble, namely to hold oneself holy and pure. Holy and pure, that meant not only steering clear of all participation, but also of all devastation through pain and any distortion through hate. In short, from any reaction at all, 
even that caused by rejection. Turn away. Retreat into the smallest corner if you have to. If you can only keep it free of the polluted air so that you can save undamaged the only thing worth saving, namely, to, to use the good old theological word, your soul. I still think that there is some justification for this attitude, and I do not repudiate it. However, simply ignoring everything and retreating into an ivory tower the way I imagined it then was not the right thing to do. I thank God that my attempts to do so failed quickly and thoroughly. Some of my acquaintances' attempts did not fail so quickly, and they had to pay a high price to learn that one can sometimes save the peace of one's soul only by sacrificing and relinquishing it. Uh, so, essentially, he's saying that we can lose a very essential part of ourselves by not allowing ourselves to uh, have our feelings about the situation and, and be honest about what we're seeing. Um, he goes on to say, in contrast to the first two ways of evading the Nazis, this third way did find a kind of public expression in Germany in the following years. Literary idols suddenly sprang up and flourished everywhere. In the outside world, even in literary circles, it has gone unnoticed that, as never before, so many recollections of childhood, family novels, books on the countryside, nature poems, so many delicate and tender little baubles were written in Germany in the years 1934 to 38. Apart from open Nazi propaganda literature, almost everything that was published in Germany belongs to this genre. In the last two years, it has declined somewhat, apparently because the effort required to achieve the necessary harm harmlessness has become too great. Up until then, it was uncanny. A whole literature of cowbells and daisies, full of children's summer holiday happiness, first love and fairy tales, baked apples and Christmas trees, a literature of obtrusive, obtrusive intimacy and timelessness, manufactured as if by arrangement in the midst of marching, concentration camps, armaments factories, and the public displays of Der Sturmer. If you had to read quantities of these books, as I did, you gradually felt that in all their quiet tenderness they were screaming at you between the lines, Don't you see how timeless and intimate we are? Don't you see how nothing can disturb us? Don't you see how unaffected we are? See it, please. Please, we beg you. And when I read this passage, I was thinking about all of the various ways that, uh, especially in the West, uh, we we have to distract ourselves. Um, games and movies and uh, and sports and and clothing and uh, and the superficialities of culture that keep us distracted from uh, from the horrors that are uh, in the works. Uh, and this is only one of many uh, deep insights that uh, Hafner had about how people were dealing with the situation at the time. And I think it's, uh, if we're going to learn anything and try and find a way, a healthy way, um, to keep ourselves whole and intact, um, we'll 
it'll benefit us to think about these things in, in very similar terms. I want to read something that we've got on the thought page currently. And if you remember that first quote that, that I read from Defying Hitler about just the different mentality that you had to put on in the situation that you couldn't smile at certain things or that you had to show enthusiasm for things that detested you. This is a letter written by a girl um, in Ukraine, in Kiev. I'll read some portions from it. She writes, My co-worker was beat in front of the entrance to her apartment for writing anti-Maidan posts on her VK page. Now, VK is kind of the Russian Facebook, and anti-Maidan is, of course, against the, the Maidan revolution coup, the people that supported the, the new government and you know, engaged in violent protests and things like that. At school the other day, my neighbor's boy called his parents at the break um, using a mobile phone and spoke with them in Russian. His schoolmates took him away, or took away his phone and broke it. They broke his bag, tore all his textbooks and notebooks, and then beat him up. They demanded he speak only Ukrainian, or for the rest of his life be afraid because they will find him and cripple him. This is a boy in seventh grade. From time to time on the streets it is possible to see this picture. As a person is approaching a group of people, the group asks questions. Were you on Maidan? Do you support Maidan? If both answers are no, the group cruelly beats, beats them and kills them. And kicks them, sorry, doesn't kill them. Of course, well, that has happened, though. In Kiev now, the majority of Russians and Russian-speaking people initially, and after Maidan, who did not support Maidan, are compelled to remember the Soviet period when, the, when quote, even walls have ears, and to keep mum. Because we, unlike other regions, like Donetsk and Lugansk, have no chance of separating from Ukraine. In Kiev now, as many as speak in whispers at personal meetings are doomed. Here it's already a totalitarian mode and probably will only get worse. Kiev is completely split. Here, associating with Russians is impossible. They are now enemies in addition to Yanukovych. It's awful that this war, the gun battles that ended Maidan, is here. Such, cruel, such cruelty beating on an, absolute, on an absolutely peaceful people. Their only crime is that they dared to be against vandals and cheap swindlers of people. All others are guarded and careful, even with people they think they know. Russian and Russian-speaking people that haven't faced an atrocity as opponents of the Maidan simply try to be silent in public places. They try not to, to attract the aggression of madmen. And those who already suffered from them, or at least as much as I know about real cases, try hard to, try hard to save their families and to be silent, silent, silent. Therefore, the picture of Kiev is quite safe. Spring comes and so on. Actually, part, and not a small part of the city, is in silent horror. It is impossible to be silent. But the inhabitants of Kiev who are anti-Maidan and, and face atrocity won't write about it openly. It's the instinct of self-preservation. And there's a response from another person living in Kiev to this letter. He, says, he or she says that they read the letter. Everything is true. The author correctly wrote, you can't drop everything and leave in one day. You can't go to a, new host, to, a, to a new house or get a new job in one day. It is necessary simply to hide. This is an absolutely awful feeling. It is necessary not only to remember that the walls have ears, but you have to remind yourself to look like you were in a good mood. Rejoice that the spring sun is shining, for example. After Maidan, it is unhealthy to do otherwise. People are watching and looking for those that did not support Maidan. Laws no, no longer work here. The people are absolutely defenseless and left to the mercy of fate. 
So this is what people in Ukraine are experiencing right now. They are experiencing exactly the same things that people like Sebastian Hafner experienced in Germany in the 30s. The same fear, the same being silent out of self, just for self-preservation, because if you say the wrong thing, you can get beaten up. You can watch videos on YouTube. You know, I'll, I'll take a note out of John Kerry's book and advocate, you know, looking to social media for some of your evidence, because you can watch the videos. You can see these right sector type thugs that will surround a person for, let's say, wearing an anti-Maidan button or something like that, and confront them, question them, and then beat them up for giving the wrong answers. This thing's happening. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's quite a letter that she wrote, and there are passages in Defying Hitler that speak to the kind of surreal normalcy uh, that was continuing to exist in, in Berlin and Germany in the time of the 30s. You know, people went on uh, going to dances, doing social things, um, but underneath all of it was this, uh, was this um, other horror that was occurring, and uh, some of them were just kind of grasping on to uh, the, the superficialities of daily life um, because that's what they, that's all they could do. Um, and to put a, a kind of calm, uh, normal face on, uh, on these matters. And uh, really, I mean, the, the, the kind of mind-boggling thing about all this is that uh, yes, it's happening very overtly and very obviously in Ukraine for anyone who, who is looking at the information. Uh, but it also seems to be happening on a global level. Um, you know, we, we've discussed the Paris shootings previously. We've, uh, we've covered the, uh, you know, the young boy, uh, the young Muslim boy in Paris who was asked in school one day if he identified with, uh, if he was uh, Charlie Hebdo or, or the terrorists, and and of course he said the wrong thing because he was identifying with uh, the the terrorists being Muslim, and uh, and was punished for it. And so, um, what we're seeing here is a uh, is happening on a global scale. Um, uh, it's happening in Israel and Gaza as well, in in, in different uh, forms. Um, and so, you know, do, do we, is it too tenuous a connection to make between Ukraine and, and Paris and the events of uh, the Paris shootings and, and what's happening in Israel? I, I don't think that it is a, a tenuous connection at all. Um, and so, you know, how do we describe it to ourselves? Uh, you know, Hollande and, and the French government aren't wearing swastikas. Uh, you know, Israel uh, was formed of, of the Jews who survived the Holocaust. Uh, and the answer is we have, to, we have to really just continue to look at the patterns. Uh, and the patterns are all here for us to see. Not only that, I think that this, the time we're living in is one of those moments that have to be called the ultimate decisions of conscience. This is the time that we have and 
we can't lose this opportunity. So in addition to just seeing the patterns, we have to be doing something. We have to be speaking up for these people, like the people living in Kiev who can't speak up, because they face bodily harm for doing so. This is the, the future that humanity has coming, not just for people in Ukraine, but this is the stuff that happens, and this is the stuff that is coming. So what can we do? Well, you know, we can't take down the Nazis in in Ukraine, but we can act as a voice for them. And so, I mean, there's several things you can do. Um, because like the, the troops that, that get sent over into Donetsk, if they're telling the truth, they say they had no idea that they had no idea what was really going on. They had no idea that their that they their forces, their you know brothers in arms, were shelling civilians. So how to get people to know? Well, first of all, you have to know for yourself. So you have to find out what's going on, and you have to stay informed and be aware, and question what you hear in the media to see if they're actually telling the truth. And once you find something out for yourself, you've got to share that because other people don't know that. Other people won't. So I mean, get on Facebook. Get on you know, Twitter and and just talk to people and see what they think and just get get more aware and, and, and get people more aware because the more aware people are of things like this, the less they will participate. And that's the problem is that we participate through our own ignorance. And so, yeah, I guess that's it. I mean, oh. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I was thinking... Um I grew up uh, um, from Zionist parents and had a Jewish upbringing, and uh, it was drilled into me, you know, look what they did to us, and and uh, never again. And and um, you know, you think about that. Um, what does never again mean? Uh, it it has to apply to everyone. It it can't be uh, so narrow a thing. I mean. If we if we understand the the horror and the injustice of of many millions of of Jews and other people uh, murdered uh, by the hands of the Nazis during World War II, if we really understand what that means, uh, then we then we say never again to this happening to anyone, uh, especially when we're aware that it is happening again, um, and I think you know part of Looking at all this is just uh, coming to terms with the fact and acknowledging as deeply as we can that uh, the Nazis never really left in a, in a sense. Um, it's not a uh, you can't reduce Nazism to a to a swastika or a guy with a funny mustache or uh, a, a specific time and place. It, it's a it's a recurring um, cyclic event uh, that affects people in very similar ways, no matter when it happens or where it happens. Uh, so we say never again, and we apply it to the here and the now. And uh, like Harrison was saying, um, first, try and understand it yourself. It's very, very big. Um, and just imagine if you were in another person's shoes halfway across the world uh, who 
just saw your mother or your brother or your wife or or son uh, killed for no good reason, um, how how would you want people who are able to see this for what it what it is to respond? And the answer to that is by seeing it for what it is and sharing uh, sharing its horrific nature with other people. So I guess in summary, um, everyone needs to take a stand and to let your voice heard while you still have a voice, because that privilege won't necessarily be around forever. So basically the time is now, and that's all we've really got. So one other thing you can do, since we've been talking about Ukraine and uh, just all the lies that have come out of there, if any of our listeners haven't gone or visited or signed the website dearputin.com, check that out. Thanks to Zoya in the chat room for, for recommending that one because it is a, you know, just read it if you haven't and if you agree with it, sign it because, like I said, now is the time to to speak up for yourself for everyone that can't speak up and, you know, for the people in the future who won't be able to because, you know, it's now or never. And that's really all we can do. We're coming down to the end of the show now, so I think we'll end it there. Um, in the future, in a future episode, I think we're going to get, we'll, I think we should have an episode uh, devoted to ponderology because a lot of the things that we were talking about right t- now today um, they're just described in clinical detail by Lobachevsky in his book, and it really helps put it together and to see how it is that, uh, like you were saying, Ilan, that um, people might not necessarily be, be wearing swastikas, but the Nazis are still here in a sense. And the, the, they're here because it wasn't Nazism that was a problem. I mean, just like it wasn't Soviet communism that was a problem. Mm-hmm. It was pathocracy, it was psychopathy in positions of power, and it is that factor that creates all of these similar features, that separate world, that new world that people live in where you have to conform to something that is not human. And so hopefully in the future we'll, be, we'll talk about that some more. But for now, I think we're going to say goodnight or good afternoon or good morning, depending on where you are, and see you next week. So thank you to all our listeners, we apologize for all of the technical sound problems we had earlier, but um, thanks for sticking with us, and goodbye. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>